the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. James Blend is producing. Although I have to tell you, both of them are going to be gone tomorrow. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'll somehow soldier on. Uh, getting ready for today's program was a bit of a challenge. In my office, and I think I've described this before, there's a television on one side. I've got my computer screen. I've got newspaper. I've got stuff everywhere, and I'm always listening. In fact, it's, it's sort of ruined my capacity to just sit in the quiet because I'm used to always having something playing in the background. So I'm always listening with one ear to what's happening uh, on one of the uh, cable news networks are always covering news and breaking news. And oftentimes in the course of the program, sometimes 10 minutes before we start, maybe a half an hour, something will happen and it shifts virtually everything that's going to happen for the two hours of the program. Well, today I didn't have the benefit of my television. Our little cable box burned up. So I was sitting in an entirely quiet room and it just about ran me nuts. I have to tell you, I ended up coming into the studio here because I do have a television mounted and I could do some work on the computer screen and, and listen to some of the, the day's news, but uh, missed most of that. And it just was a kind of a disruptive day. And I have to tell you, these last several weeks, I haven't really talked um, in this, this week or the last few days about what's going on with Dan. We're in week number five of a six-week treatment program. And for those of you who don't know, he has endocarditis. This is maybe the fourth time that we've gone through this. And it required a pick line that goes into his upper arm, uh, across his shoulder, and directly into his his heart. And it has been flooding uh, antibiotics directly into his heart now for about five weeks. We've got another, well, maybe four and a half, five, week and a half uh, to go. And uh, he's extremely tired. It's exhausting for him. He hasn't been able to work during that period of time. And as I mentioned early on, he um, while he was in the hospital for about a week, he first had what were flu-like symptoms. He was, pardon me, he was vomiting and, you know, the th- things you do when you have the flu. But he didn't recover. And that usually for us is kind of a clue. Something's not quite right. And uh, it, sure enough, he uh, continued to get worse and was hospitalized over that period of time, lost 20 pounds, and that's about five days. And my husband is a tall, thin drink of water. And if you know Dan Rice, you know 20 pounds uh, is a lot for him to lose. And I remember reaching up on his shoulder, and I could feel the outline of his bones knowing, okay, this is this is a serious thing. So part of my assignment over these last few weeks has been to try to stuff him with all kinds of really good food to put that weight back on him. And I'm happy to announce that he's gained about 10 pounds. We're not quite there yet, and I'm still working on it. But it seems like uh, I'm in the kitchen all the time. I'm making a full breakfast. I'm making a full lunch. I'm making full dinner. In addition to the two meals a day that I pre- prepare for my mother, I make her uh, breakfast and I make her uh, lunch. And she um, generally does uh, uh, dinner on her own sometimes because I get home so late. She'll uh, she'll have the meal that I prepare for us. So it's been a very long an exhausting slog. In addition to that, there are certain times and certain things have to be done. And 
and I oversee uh, those things. In addition to the 24-hour uh, flooding of the antibiotic that he has in a, uh, a bag, that he, it's like a backpack that he carries uh, with tubing from the pack to his uh, arm. Uh, there's, there are two antibiotics that I administer twice a day, and they have to be timed just right and, and all of that. So it really has been an exhausting uh, period of time. During this season, we had made commitments to lead worship at a couple of churches. One, we uh, had an entire concert at Shoals, and Dan Rice, being who Dan Rice is, insisted he was going to see that through. I said right away, man, we need to call him and tell him we, we can't do it. You're in the hospital and we're talking about this. He said, no, they have a whole community event surrounding this. And by the way, it was an amazing uh, weekend. We're going to do this. So we had a rehearsal on Saturday. We did the event on Sunday and Dan Rice was there, although he didn't play uh, like he intended. He sat in a chair much of the time, but he sang. So we have had a lot of things going on. I'm preparing for a concert at New Song Church. They're celebrating their 40th anniversary and there's a reunion of their vocal band and there's been a lot of rehearsals and work uh, for that. It's just been a very uh, difficult season, but we're seeing the light at the end of that tunnel. Uh, Dan Rice, while he's exhausted and it's been it's been a challenge, I was reminded just yesterday that he's in the fight for his life. And while we treat it kind of in a lighthearted way, it's a very serious matter. And um, so he's had the time to rest and, and kind of get through all of that. I walked to the um, front desk just a minute before the, uh, the program started, and there was a little envelope. I opened it up. It was from uh, Peggy. Where does Peggy live? She lives in uh, Washougal, Washington. And it said, Dear Georgine Rice, praying for you and your family, dear one, during this especially difficult time. And I was reminded um, so much of our strength and capacity to move forward and endure the challenge of it all has come from the faithful prayers and support of God's people. My family here at KPDQ and listeners to this station, and it's been such an encouragement and blessing. Peggy, I, I appreciate your card uh, today. It came at just the right time. One of my coworkers, she's relatively new here. She's in our promotions department, so she's not here every day, but she's at most of our events. Just the sweetest woman. I'm just getting to know her, and she told me, I'm bringing dinner for you and your husband. She's, she's a mom. She's got small children at home, and uh, today she brought dinner for my husband and me. So when I, um, when I go home tonight... There's one less meal that I'm going to have to cook. I mean, that's just thrilling to me. <laughs> anyway, I hadn't intended to start the whole program this way, but I was so encouraged by the card. And I don't know, it's just uh, it's been a tough season, but we're getting through it. And, and God is so faithful. OK, the truth is there's no crying in radio, so I don't know what's going on here. <laughs> we're going to take a break here in a moment. And when we come back. We're going to talk about stuff that everybody cares about, not just what's going on with me. And we're going to talk with Kathleen Michael. She's the author of A River of Tears. Maybe there is crying in radio. It's a first-person account of the true cost of abortion, and she writes about her own and um, just sort of her odyssey toward wholeness of following decisions she made on more than one occasion to abort her child, her children. We're also going to talk with Hans von Spakovsky. He's the um, manager of of one of the uh, branches of the Heritage Foundation. He's also a senior legal fellow at the uh, Edwin Meese Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. We're going to talk about Attorney General Sessions' announcement that cities and states that uh, 
don't cooperate with the feds with regard to uh, criminal aliens could lose some uh, federal grant money. He's actually moving forward with that. There was a lot of rhetoric about it before. He now has made the uh, commitment that they're moving forward. So we'll get into that. Quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Okay, we're back 19 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, Republican senators are reportedly working on a so-called skinny repeal of Obamacare. I'm not quite sure what that means, and I'm not sure they know what that means. Details remain fairly sparse. No one should mistake this last-minute effort to... Uh, for being the culmination of Republicans' seven-year promise to repeal and ultimately replace Obamacare, but it certainly is a head-scratcher for many onlookers. The uh, inconclusive nature of the process stems from a fundamental divide within the Republican Party. It's over how much the Obamacare uh, plan should be repealed and what, if anything, should take its place. Well, the process was always going to be difficult. No consensus was built over the past seven years. Uh, perhaps because they never thought they'd be in a position to do much about it. But this week's uh, gamesmanship in the uh, on the Senate floor highlights why conservatives are justifiably frustrated with the ostensibly um, uh, party that's going to repeal and replace Obamacare as promised. To quote Senator uh, Ben Sass, a Republican out of Nebraska, there was a lot of show voting going on uh, here the last 15 months. Um, uh, Heritage Action for America had previously written, no one should excuse modern Republicans' reluctance to keep their promise to repeal Obamacare. But the restraints imposed by Republicans' current governing coalition will take years, not weeks, to overcome. The long-term work of righting that ship need not and cannot prevent Republicans from governing in the here and the now under those constraints. Well, I'm not sure the here and the now is going to be uh, that uh, that long, or rather the uh, the expanse following the here and now, because whether or not following the midterm elections, they retain the majority in the House and the Senate remains an open question. Well, as the Senate's Obamacare efforts, however one chooses to define them, come to a culmination uh, tonight or early Friday morning, it's important that conservatives understand what's at stake with the various potential outcomes and equally important what comes next. Okay, the skinny repeal. Well, over the last several days, Senate Republican leaders appeared to abandon any hope of a wide-ranging repeal and replace bill like the Better Care Reconciliation Act. Instead, their focus shifted to a very narrow bill that repealed a few of Obamacare's most unpopular pieces. Then there's the conference committee, the most likely response to valid conservative concerns that the skinny repeal, as it's being called, leaves the core pillars of Obamacare in place will be to utter the phrase conference committee. Conservatives are inherently skeptical of conference committees because the dynamics typically favor leadership and committee chairs hostile to conservative policy objectives. So this will be an interesting element to watch if, in fact, the Senate passes something, anything. At first glance, there's very little reason to believe a more conservative version of the Senate Better Care Reconciliation Act would emerge from the conference committee process. First of all, because the committee, uh, the conference committee, rather, would not change the fundamentals of the uh, the Senate. And Second, historically, the conference uh, products tend to be watered down to the lowest common denominator. Now, what about failure? At this point, it's not clear anything Obama uh, care related can pass the Republican controlled Senate. 
Earlier uh, today, Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer uh, said Senator Lamar Alexander and Patty Murray agreed to move a bipartisan bill to stabilize the individual insurance market through their committee if current Republican efforts fail today. So make no mistake, when lawmakers call for bipartisan market stabilization, they mean more taxpayer money and more regulations. At that point, Americans would be struck with a, a failing health care law for who knows how long. And networks would continue to narrow. Premiums would continue to rise. The choice would continue to decline. Obamacare would become uh, what some are referring to as a zombie law. And throwing more taxpayer money at zombie care is unacceptable. Well, regardless of what happens later today or early tomorrow, we know that the Democrats will not stop in their quest for a nationalized single-payer scheme. So these are the two ends of the playing field. And despite justified disappointment with the current process, conservatives can't see the playing field either. Americans need relief, whether or not we get it now at some point in the near future or we ever get it at all, uh, stems from what happens over the next couple of days, weeks, and sadly, months, if not years. We'll just have to wait and see. Well, the Washington Post writes, um, after consultation with my generals and military experts, please be advised that the United States government will not accept or allow transgender individuals to serve in any capacity in the military. Trump wrote on Twitter, Our military must be focused on decisive and overwhelming victory and cannot be burdened with the tremendous medical costs and disruption that transgenders in the military would entail. Well, this was his Twitter uh, feed, um, as published by Washington Post and other places as well. National Review says this about that. After the announcement, David French writes, Trump does all things against a backdrop of impulsiveness, chaos and divisiveness that undermines sound policies, even as it does immense damage to the body politic. Later, he writes, here's what actual presidential leadership would look like after permitting his respected secretary of defense to comprehensively study the issue of transgender service. He would draft a carefully written, factually supported statement describing in detail the military justifications for the policy. Then, with the full prepared backing of Pentagon, he'd approach a Republican-controlled Congress, write his policy into law, creating a far more permanent standard that couldn't be quickly reversed by the next administration and wouldn't jerk the military into a game of culture war hot potato, depending on whose party controls the White House. But that's hard work. It's much easier to tweet. Sadly, that is an apt description of what just happened. Whether or not you agree, as I do with the president's conclusion, uh, the means by which he communicates can oftentimes uh, greatly undermine um, his uh, his goal. Another story claims President Trump may have taken sudden action to ban transgender people from serving in the military, which, by the way, was the case um, before October of last year, uh, as an attempt to ensure House funding for the border wall, according to a report published Wednesday afternoon. Now, that's a story out of the Washington Examiner. And because a report is published, doesn't give it any uh, validity at all. But that's one of the scenarios that's being uh, floated out there. Bethany Mandel says, I don't think for a minute President Trump cares about or even understands Americans' objections to transgender uh, push in our culture, but he is giving voice to the many, many Americans cowed into silence by screeches, screeches of bigot who are not okay with where we're headed. As with all politicians, this, will, um, this was calculated, but given that he is not a politician, it was calculated badly and poorly uh, thought out. He's trying to throw the news cycle off on the health care bill and earn back points with the conservatives who are angry with his treatment of Sessions. It is a ploy, but it's a smart ploy. He might not be good at putting these things through proper channels, but he's smart enough to win. Well, we'll see whether or not that is, in fact, the case. 
Well, today, in response and following the Twitter, or rather the tweet from the president, the Department of Defense declared there will be no modifications uh, to the current policy of transgender service members for now, a day after the president issues his issued rather his surprise uh, three tweets. In a memo to service chiefs and commanders, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Joseph Dunford Jr., declared no changes to the policy until the president's direction has been received by the Secretary of Defense and the Secretary has issued implementation guidance, which has not yet happened. In the meantime, we will continue to treat all of our personnel with respect, Dunford said in the memo obtained by Fox News. As importantly, given the current fight and the challenges we face, we will we will all remain focused on accomplishing our assigned missions. Well, Dunford's statement suggested Defense Secretary James Mattis wasn't given any significant heads up on the policy change. Mattis was on vacation when Trump tweeted. Mattis has also been publicly silent and questioned about Trump's announced ban, though the White House said Wednesday that Mattis was immediately informed of Trump's decision. Immediately after, immediately before, we don't know. Dunford himself was not aware that Trump was going to announce the ban, a U.S. official said. Trump's Wednesday morning tweets reversed an Obama-era policy of allowing transgender troops to serve. After consultation with my generals and military experts, please be advised that the United States government will not accept or allow... President Trump tweeted. Trump did not uh, mention Mattis, the retired Marine general who recently told the service chiefs to spend another six months weighing the cost and benefits of allowing transgender individuals to enlist. White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders seemed unable to provide basic details on the rollout of the change on Wednesday, saying the implementation would be worked out lawfully. Civil liberty and LGBTQ groups uh, quickly condemned, as expected. Glad President Sarah Kate Ellis said the president is calling for a witch hunt and purge of the uh, transmilitary Americans. Uh, Sanders said uh, Trump made a military decision. She said it was his judgment that allowing transgender service erodes military readiness and unit unit cohesion and also made reference to the cost. Uh, that analysis that was postponed or, or at least more time was given to complete will ultimately, I suppose, tell the tale. But that's where it stands at this point. The president cannot simply tweet a policy. It has to go through certain channels. And as of now, uh, the policy established by the Obama administration uh, remains in place until those channels uh, have been properly consulted and announcements made. Meanwhile, Foxconn Technology Group on Wednesday pledged to invest some $10 billion to build a display panel plant in Wisconsin that could employ about 13,000 workers, draw up uh, to $3 billion in subsidies from state taxpayers, a deal that could uh, ripple through the economy in the 2018 elections. This is a great day for the, for the American worker and manufacturers and everyone who believes in the concept and the label made in America. And uh, President Trump said uh, at the White House during the announcement, as Republicans in Washington struggled to repeal Obamacare, advanced bills on tax cuts and infrastructure, the president seized on the announcement as a win in a key swing state, crowing that the uh, the deal wouldn't... Uh have been done if he hadn't been elected. The agreement represents an opportunity as well as a risk for Wisconsin. Lawmakers there have to uh, now consider a subsidy package nearly 50 times bigger, that's five zero times bigger than the state's previous record. The factory project would involve a virtual village with housing, stores, service businesses uh, spread over at least a thousand acres, according to interviews. That acreage, 1.5 square mile area the size of uh, Shorewood, could be assembled from the parcels that initially aren't, con- aren't um, 
contiguous, according to sources. At uh, 20 million square feet, the factory would be three times the size of the Pentagon, making it one of the largest manufacturing campuses in the nation. It would initially employ 3,000 workers, uh, making an average of $53,900 a year plus benefits and could eventually um, boast more than four times that amount. America does not have a single LCD plant to produce a complicated system. We are going to change that, Foxconn Chairman Terry Gow announced at that um, at that ceremony. Well, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk with uh, Kathleen Michael. She's the author of A River of Tears. She's referring to her own and those of other women who have had abortions. She offers a first-person account revealing the true cost of abortion. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 37 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. My next guest, Kathy, had an abortion in 1976 and for the next 25 years could truthfully say that her abortion didn't seem to affect her. She had a successful career in the corporate world and a new family when she found herself watching an abortion story called The Empty Chair. To her surprise, she cried for three days. Shortly after, she woke up with a title, A River of Tears, and the certainty that she should write a book containing first-person accounts of women who had experienced abortion. What followed was a personal journey that exhumed long-buried pain, allowed the process of fully grieving the loss of her precious child to begin. Over the next five years, she interviewed dozens of women and captured their stories of loss. Abortion rights advocates put forth a one-sided view of abortion, and God wants the world to know the the true cost to both the mothers and their babies. God used that process to fully heal Kathy, and it is her desire that other women will be healed as well, and that the world will know in greater measure the true cost of abortion. Kathy Michael joins us now to talk about her book, A River of Tears, First-person accounts reveal the true cost of abortion. Kathleen, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's good to be here with you, Georgine. Well, this is a difficult subject, but I appreciate that you have uh, taken the time to write about it, to tell your story and the story of others whose lives have been impacted by abortion, and that you're willing to talk about it here today. Thank you. Mm. I'm, Um, I'm glad to have the opportunity. You write in the first chapter, for years, I remembered little about my abortion. What I do remember, though, is sitting in my yellow VW bug in the parking lot of the clinic after my abortion. I felt somewhere deep inside that I had done something horrible. And yet you you didn't really you you didn't experience much of an impact uh, for quite some time. Describe your initial feelings um, leading up to and following that that abortion. I think that, um, like many women, um, I didn't want to think about it, and so I was moving on autopilot, if you will, so just going through the motions, and um, fortunately, at the time, it seemed fortunate that the uh, abortion provider, they don't help you to think through it, they don't provide pros and cons, and so I was just able to do that and but it was once I had done it I had no I knew afterwards I knew that I had done something really horrible and I just really felt a deep pain in the pit of my stomach and um, I and I buried it I just I buried it for many years and just left it there 
You didn't speak to your husband about it. You didn't talk to any, anyone before the procedure. Planned Parenthood uh, didn't mention any other options, just reassured you that this was, in fact, safe and sane. Uh, you made the point in the book that if you were, had gone for plastic surgery, there would have been a discussion to ensure that you understood the impact, the pros, the cons, and so on. But with your abortion, there was no discussion about the procedure or the risks at all. Right, right. So anyone who's had a even a minor medical procedure knows that they make you list, listen to a long list of, of possible side effects, and um, you know, you're required to do that before you can mm-hmm. a- approve the procedure. But with abortion, there's nothing. It's, it really is just the path of least resistance. They create that, and, uh, and unfortunately, many of us take that. You became a Christian several years after your abortion. How did that transform uh, your life? And how did the subject of abortion, and in particular your own, how was that reintroduced to you now that you were a follower of Christ? So the first thing that happened um, was I had a friend who was uh, involved in the uh, pro-life movement, and she just mentioned to me something about abortion, and I said that I had no opinion about it, and then followed that up with, uh, you know, trying to explain my my position, um, saying that I didn't think you could legislate morality. And she didn't agree with that, so I said, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll pray about it. And once I said that, God just brought all kinds of information to me about abortion, and I think the most significant thing to me was I was listening to a radio program, and there were there was a young man and a young woman who had been going to every state legislature saying that they were the, the product of rape and that they were the ones that legislators were deciding it was okay to abort. And here they were, they were 18 or 19 and just, you know, lovely young people. And that really struck me. And so I, that helped to begin the process of me becoming um, a pro-life advocate and being very much against abortion. But I still didn't deal, I dealt with that. Um, in my head and didn't deal with it emotionally or didn't deal with it in relation to my own uh, abortion. And that didn't occur until, um, as you said, 25 years later when I was watching the program and uh, the, um, the empty chair and um, just cried for days. And, and this is just pent up, you know, pent up tears, pent up pain and shared with my family for the first time that I had had an abortion. And it was then that um, I believe God gave me the name, um, A River of Tears, and just a knowing that I I needed to write a book. Um, But at that time, I had just left the corporate world, and I entered full-time ministry, and I didn't feel like a writer, an author, and I also um, didn't feel safe, I think, at that time coming out about my abortion when I just started full-time work at a church as a pastor of small groups. So I just, I let that opportunity pass, but our God is a God of second chances, and um, about five years later, um, the um, opportunity came once again where he made it clear why he wanted me to write the book called The River of Tears. And that happened after I, I went to Washington with a group of intercessory prayer people to pray for the sins of the nation. Um, there were six sites in Washington, D.C. and six sites in uh, Jerusalem 
that were praying on Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. And um, I was at the, at the Capitol building, and there were microphones set up at all of these different sites. I was at the Capitol building, and the leader of our site um, did the opening prayer and then turned to me and asked me to do the, the first, to read the first part of the program, which had been pre-prepared, and I had not seen that. So I got up to, um, to read that portion, and it, it didn't take long before I realized that I was reading a, an abortion prayer um, and uh, called Let Not One Child Be Forgotten. And so I, I, my knees buckled at that point, and a couple of women came up, a friend and, and the leader of our group, just to, to support me. And I did get through the reading of that very moving prayer, asking for forgiveness and for um, healing for the mothers. And um, I, I had my own deliverance that day. So I just I cried my own river tears mm-hmm. at that at that point. And then when I went home, got home the next day, I was uh, reading the newspaper and was reading an article by um, written about Eleanor Sneal, who was then the president of the National Organization of Women, and it was about a website that they had put together that captured stories of women who had had abortions and then gone on to become PhDs or whatever. And as I looked at that website, what I noticed is there was not one story of anyone who had suffered because of abortion. It was all of it. It was very, you know, it was agenda-driven. It was a very positive uh, story and all positive stories. And God made it clear to me at that time that that's what the book was supposed to counter. Mm-hmm. It was supposed to counter the lies of the uh, pro-abortion groups that there is no cost. And if you look at just over the years with the various projects sponsored by women's organizations, the message is that you can have an abortion and live happily ever after with no regrets. And some women may actually have that experience. So for many years, I would have said that was my story. My pain was buried. It was hidden, but it was there. And a woman just can't take the life of her child and not have pain buried Mm -hmm. or otherwise. We're going to continue our conversation in just a moment, but I do need to take a break. Again, the book is titled A River of Tears. Kathleen Michael, my guest, will be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 52 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking with Kathleen Michael. She's the author of A River of Tears. First-person accounts reveal the true cost of abortion. When you came to faith in Christ and God had a uh, gave you an encounter with your, your past that was redemptive, uh, you uh, came to the conclusion that you were being called to help women understand more fully the decisions they had made or were about to make. And you made reference to the request and the prayer that you read in Washington, D.C., was that God would drop the name of their baby into each mother's heart um, and that, that women would have a, a better understanding of what abortion really is about and w- what cost it has associated with it. How did you begin to, uh, first of all, tell your story and then reach other women uh, who had either had abortions or had contemplated having abortions? It, it was interesting to me that even though many of the women that I had had talked with had not 
shared their abortion stories before, how, how really open and ready they were to, to do that. You know, I think they felt comfortable with me because I had, they knew that I had shared that experience as well, but they wanted to tell their stories. So many of the women I just came across through word of mouth, as I mentioned that I had, was writing a book, someone would say, oh, you need to talk to my friend or my cousin or whatever. And then I also did work with um, the abortion recovery program uh, people, and they um, let the people who are attending their uh, programs know that this was an opportunity for them if they wanted to share their story. And women wanted to do that. I mean, I think they just know, we know that, you know, we're not hearing the full story. And I think the um, Planned Parenthood and the pro-abortion people have, have been so successful at normalizing the taking of life, and it's really infiltrated our basic culture. Our government funds it, and legislation in many states supports easy access and the withholding of parental involvement. And our education system glorifies Planned Parenthood and really trivializes abortion. Um, before our young people graduate high school, they've been indoctrinated with the lie that there's no cost to aborting a child, and God wants us to know the truth. And I think these women, they wanted to share their story. And, I mean, I think especially one of the things that I really saw was that the women who had gone through the abortion recovery programs, that there was just a great correlation with the level of healing that they had received. And so, you know, that's an, another important thing to me is that people know that these programs are available and that they, uh, you know, that they know that there's great benefit for them, tremendous healing, forgiveness, and freedom if they, if they choose to attend one of these programs. Now, you told your story, but you told the story of other women as well. Did you find a thread that was common among all of the stories of women who had had abortions and came to regret the decision they had made? I, uh, yes. I mean, I think the main, the main thread, I think, was just was this tr- tremendous regret, um, uh, just a very deep sadness. And um, that, that regret it really took the form of just wishing that someone had shared with them what they now knew. If I knew then what I know now kind of thing. And so that, again, is another story, another reason that they wanted to tell their story. Another thing was that um, there was some distortion in how they saw God initially, and I think the programs really helped with that too. I mean, many of them went on to have... Um, miscarriages or couldn't get pregnant or had other issues around, um, around childbirth and, and some felt that there was some sort of punishment going on and God was punishing them, which is not, which is not the case at all, but it was just, that was just part of them processing their guilt. And so just to be able to go through a program and go through all of that, and the program really starts with helping us really understand who God is and how much he loves us and, and his desire for uh, reconciliation and, and healing. He loves these women, and he wants them fully healed and reconciled with him so that they can fulfill their purpose. I mean, there are many, you know, the babies can't, will never fulfill their purpose that he had for them, but the, the mothers can. So he wants to redeem, redeem that for them. Can you share among all of the stories that are collected in your book, A River of Tears, can you share one story with our listeners? Um, 
Hmm. Yes. It's difficult to choose one, I know. I know it is. It is. So they sort of all flood me. One that I thought was very interesting was um, a, a woman who had an abortion, had, a, had unlike me, she was unable to bury her, her deep regret. So she was really struggling. And she was not, she did not know God at the time. And, so, and she was really, uh, you know, struggling to deal with it. And she found a book, a New Age book, um, that dealt with uh, um, abortion. And, um, you know, just talked about how it wasn't the baby's time and that time will come later, the baby will come back. And, and at any rate, it was, you know, it was a lie. But it, at the time, it helped her. And so, you know, years later, she's, she comes to know God, she comes to know the truth, and she and her husband are in a bookstore in um, California, actually, in a bookstore, and come across this same New Age book, and New Age book on abortion, and it had been updated. And when she turned the book over, when she looked at she saw she had written a letter. She had written a letter to the author saying, thank you for writing this book, how much it had helped her. And that letter had been printed on the back of the updated version of the book. And so for her, the opportunity to um, be able to tell, her, tell the real truth, to tell a story in another book hmm. that honors God was very, um, very meaningful to her. I want to give you an opportunity, as we only have about a minute, to speak to any woman who might be listening who is where you were when the, the initial horror hit, uh, hit you, uh, and you, you don't quite yet see what God intends, um, but, but you know that there's a light at the end of the tunnel in which it, he reveals his great grace and redemption. But what do you say to the woman today who is feeling the weight of that shame? Okay. Yeah, so the, I, I think the intuitive thing is to try to hide it and bury it, and you need to bring it into the light. You need to bring it into the light of, of Jesus Christ and let his healing power come over you. And so I, I just highly recommend that you find a program, and, and you can actually just uh, Google um, uh post-abortion recovery Portland, and you'll come across the heart program or Mm -hmm. she's restored, which is a program out of uh, um, Washington, Southwest Washington and and begin the process. I mean, it's there, it's a road back and it's not even an easy road, but it is so rewarding because God will meet you there. And there will just be, I've witnessed so many miracles of women who have gone through this process and how God has met them in just such sweet, special ways. And so you don't want to deprive yourself of that, and and you want you want to be fully restored to God. So it is possible. Amen. Well, thank you so much for being vulnerable, for sharing your story and, and the stories of other women. Again, the book is titled A River of Tears. First-person accounts reveal the true cost of abortion. Kathleen Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Okay, thank you. Appreciate Georgia. it. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. When we return, we'll talk with Hans von Spakovsky. We're going to talk about Attorney General Jeff Sessions' announcement that cities and states could lose millions in federal grants unless they cooperate with federal authorities on criminal aliens. That and more when we return. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show, about seven minutes after five o'clock. Glad to have you with us. 
Well, the um, Justice Department is making a new move against sanctuary cities. And here to talk with us about that move is Hans von Spakovsky. He's uh, with the Heritage Foundation. He's a senior legal fellow with the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me back. You know, a lot of the conversation or discussion of uh, 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 Jeff Sessions has to do with a disagreement that he apparently uh, has with the with the president, but uh, not as much attention given to what the Justice Department is doing with regard to sanctuary cities and targeting gangs. Let's talk about what the, the Justice Department is doing and what Mr. Sessions is saying the states and localities must do. Sure. Well, he's carrying out uh, the directions that he was given by President Trump in one of the first executive orders that the president signed. And that executive order basically told uh, the Department of Justice that the president wanted them to cut off access to any kind of discretionary funds that the Justice Department uh, handed out. And the Attorney General has now said, uh, for example, there's one specific grant program called the Burn the burn program, um, and he has said that any city or town that's applying for that grant is going to have to certify that uh, they do not have sanctuary policies and that they will cooperate with federal uh, immigration authorities when it comes to finding illegal aliens in their cities. Now, what does that cooperation look like? Well, for example, it means that um, uh, when a city arrests an individual, and determine that, in fact, they're in the country illegally, um, they will notify the Department of Homeland Security that they're holding an illegal alien. It also means that uh, they have to agree that uh, immigration officials can come to the city jails and um, uh, pick up uh, illegal aliens who are being released uh, before they're allowed out into the community so that uh, ICE can pick them up and uh, deport them. So these are individuals who are have had a run-in with law enforcement. So we're not talking about the average Joe on the street. We're talking about people who have had a, a brush with the law. Yes, that that is that is specifically what they are talking about. Because the uh, what a sanctuary policy means is that, for example, San Francisco, which has one in place, San Francisco says uh, we will not honor federal detainer warrants. A detainer warrant. Uh, is a document that uh, the Department of Homeland Security will send to uh, a city like San, uh, like San Francisco saying, uh, we have learned that you are holding a criminal illegal alien in your local jail. Please notify us before you release him so we can come and pick him up. And San Francisco refuses to do that. How important is the, the discretionary uh, money that, that states and, and localities might uh, benefit from from the federal government if they were to cooperate. I mean, is this a is this a legitimate deterrent, or is this just ah, we don't need that money? That's going to depend on the city or town uh, and how much money they've gotten from the past from the federal government. The, the Justice Department has a total of about a little over four billion dollars that they give out in grants. You know, if you're a relatively uh, moderate sized town, uh, it could be that the federal funds that you get uh, could be very important and a significant part of your law enforcement budget. For bigger cities, you know, it might not be that big of a deal, but it makes perfect sense for the Justice Department to say that we're not going to give federal funds to cities and towns that are obstructing 
federal law enforcement. Now, my understanding is that recipients of the so-called burn uh, JAG grants are already required to comply with the federal law. So this this is really an enforcement of what law already exists. Uh, right. Why has that not been the case up to this point? Well, because uh, the prior administration didn't, even though the even though the programs um, says that you've got to you know say that you're in compliance with federal law, the prior administration basically didn't care if that was false. You know, they knew that cities like San Francisco, which have a sanctuary and policy in place, were actually not in compliance with federal law, but they didn't care about it, and they weren't in, uh, and didn't do anything about it. So it was a matter of, uh, of enforcement. Now, yes. uh, opponents of this enforcement of existing law uh, say that the policies will um, distance law, uh, local police from immigration uh, or, or immigrants in their communities. It's going to make it more difficult for them uh, to have a relationship with people who might report crimes or be likely to cooperate with law enforcement. Uh, is that a legitimate uh, complaint? And uh, what what response are we hearing, either from the attorney general or might you offer in response to that concern? Uh, no, I don't think that's a legitimate concern uh, at all. And all you have to do is look at the crimes uh, that are committed even in cities like San Francisco that already have a sanctuary policy in place. There are many, many crimes, specific crimes I could cite to you, in which uh, they were committed by illegal aliens in San Francisco. And clearly, uh, having a sanctuary policy um, hasn't done anything to stop the kind of crime that they have committed there. So at this point, um, I, I don't know if, if funds are requested during the, at the start of the fiscal year. Is this likely to have an immediate effect, or will this take some time for those uh, states and, and cities uh, that have relied on these funds in the past but may not be eligible for them in the future? Well, I have to say I, I don't know what the exact deadlines are uh, for these various programs uh, that the Justice Department has. I, I suspect that what's going to happen with this is you're going to start to see the effect uh, probably pretty soon, and it's just going to continue uh, for the rest of the fiscal year this year and most definitely will affect cities and towns when the new federal fiscal year starts, which, as as you know, uh, the, the federal fiscal year runs from uh, October to October. Mm-hmm. Now, we mentioned the, the Brine grants. Are there other grants, federal dollars, that uh, will not be available to so-called sanctuary cities? Uh, yes, there should be, because that is not the only grant program that the Justice Department has. Uh, there are other programs, too, and I'm assuming that uh, the Justice Department will apply this same rule to those. What hasn't been talked about, but I think ought to be looked at by the administration, is the fact that the Department of Homeland Security has similar types of grants that it gives out uh, to cities and towns, and so far I've had We've not heard a word that the Department of Homeland Security is going to do the same thing. They should. Well, we'll certainly continue to follow and uh, listen to hear what the Attorney General has to say next on it. Thank you so much for talking with us. Sure, uh, happy to do it. Always a pleasure. Again, Hans von Spakovsky with the Heritage Foundation. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll take a quick break. We'll uh, come back and talk about the fact that there is a new international religious freedom ambassador. We'll tell you who he is. And right here in Portland, the first embryo, uh, human embryos uh, have been edited. That's the word they're choosing to use. We'll also talk about a looming vote for PERS right here on The Georgine Rice Show.
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 20 minutes after 5 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, President Trump has selected Kansas Governor Sam Brownback to serve as ambassador at large for international religious freedom. It's a position that would have him speak for oppressed religious groups around the world, not just Christian, but others. He became a leader on human rights when he was the, in the U.S. Senate, during which time he visited Darfur, Sudan, and reported back that the region was seeing genocide. A former Virginia Congressman Frank Wolf, who helped create the ambassadorship for religious freedom, said that Brownback was a great choice. The job is really made for him, the Kansas City Star says. On uh, all these issues, he's been there before almost anybody else. Well, Brownback would report to the State Department, take the lead on issues of international religious freedom. He said he was honored to receive the appointment. Uh, Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission President Russell Moore quickly tweeted his support for Brownback as well. Senator Brownback will, I sincerely hope, see this position as contributing to the national security of the United States. Tom Farr, who's president of the Religious Freedom Institute, says, going on to say that advancing religious freedom in our foreign policy will help Christian and other religious minorities around the world who are suffering persecution. He and Moore both called for the Senate to swiftly confirm Brownback. Not everyone supports the appointment, however. LGBT rights groups uh, Equity Kansas said that his support for religious freedom has been a cover for bigotry. That's always the calculation. Governor Brownback, and by the way, if you want to be prepared to address that objection, I would encourage you uh, to read the book we talked about yesterday uh, that that covers that, that subject very well. Anyway, Governor Brownback is unsuited to represent American and values of freedom, liberty, and justice, they went on to say, whether at home or abroad. Uh, his goal is not to use religion as a way to expand freedom, but to use a narrow, bigoted interpretation of religion to deny freedom to his fellow citizens. Well, no, what he is advocating is a diverse community in which there are some with religious convictions, others who do not have them, and the freedom of both to uh, to function. Anyway, Brownback's popularity as a governor has also been waning. The mostly uh, Republican legislature stopped him from cutting taxes when they overrode his veto back in June, and his approval ratings have been among the lowest for governors in the country, so it was a timely appointment for him. Those issues are not likely to affect his appointment. He doesn't doubt that he will be confirmed and said uh, Sam was well liked, well thought of by his mem- by uh, members on both sides of the aisle when in Washington. If he is confirmed, Brownback would lead an office of around 30 and report directly to the Secretary of State. Sam will be Tillerson's right hand on these issues, and I think Sam will compliment Tillerson very well, Mr. Wolf went on to say. Again, uh, Sam Brownback, Governor Brownback, former member of Congress, uh, is uh, has been nominated to become an international religious freedom ambassador, a position that I don't believe existed prior to this appointment, and there will be something of a staff to uh, to support him. In responding to um, uh, to this appointment, Family Research Council uh, uh, Tony Perkins said this, I am very pleased to see my friend Governor Brownback nominated for this important position. He is a well-qualified nominee facing a weighty task as religious freedom is under serious attack in many places around the world right now. When we combined the positive changes put in place by the Frank R. Wolf International Religious Freedom Act with someone of Governor Brownback's expertise and stature, we stand a better chance that this issue will get the attention it deserves in the United States foreign policy and that the challenges will be addressed. 
Uh, Perkins um, went on to say, uh, Travis Weber, who's the director of the Center for Religious Liberty, uh, said this of the appointment. With this nomination, the Trump administration has a unique opportunity to prioritize the protection of human rights and religious freedom around the world. In past U.S. administrations, the issue has simply not consistently been a core goal of our foreign policy. We must bring back America's role as a global religious freedom defender by integrating and prioritizing religious freedom in our foreign policy across federal agencies. We also must conduct international religious freedom training for U.S. government employees and officials engaged in such work and ensure that our asylum and refugee processing mechanisms give fair considerations uh, uh, c- consideration to all claims of persecution on the basis of religion. Governor Brownback can help in all these areas. Specifically, the United States must not neglect our responsibility to follow up on efforts to protect Christians, Yazidis, and others from the hifo- horrific violence in the Middle East. We've already recognized a genocide is taking place there. We've declared it publicly, and now amid recent reports that State Department lawyers are removing that term from official descriptions of the situation, we must exercise even more vigilance to ensure Sure, victims of genocide get the protection they need and deserve. Key efforts by Congress in this area must continue by passing additional pieces of legislation, such as the Iraq and Syria Genocide Emergency Relief and Accountability Act of 2017. But good people uh, need to affect change to refocus the fight for religious freedom. We are confident that Governor Brownback will be able to help bring that change, both in the Middle East and around the world. And again, that's a quote from uh, Travis Weber, who's the director of the Center for Religious uh, Liberty at the Family Research Council. Well, the first known attempt to create a genetically modified human embryos In other words, human beings in the United States has been carried out by a team of researchers right here in Portland, according to MIT Technology in their review. The effort led by the Oregon Health Sciences University involved changing the DNA of a large number of one cell embryos with a gene editing uh, technique. Uh, CRISPR, C-R-I-S-P-R, according to people familiar with the result. Until now, American scientists have watched with a combination of awe, envy, and some alarm as scientists elsewhere were first to explore the controversial practice, and it is controversial. To date, three previous reports of editing human embryos were also published by scientists in China. I'm not sure we're in good company on this score. Now the, the scientist here in the U.S. Uh, is, is believed to have broken new ground both in the number of embryos experimented upon and by demonstrating that it is possible to safely and efficiently correct defective genes that cause inherited disease. Uh, although none of the embryos were allowed to develop for more than a few days, uh, and there was never any intention of implanting them into the womb. The experiment, uh, w- experiments rather, are a milestone on what may prove to be an inevitably inevitable journey toward the birth of the first genetically modified humans. Now, one can imagine there are two sides to this coin. On the one hand, if you are addressing known diseases, um, perhaps this is something worth considering. On the other hand, the capacity to manipulate the stuff of which human life is made is fraught with all kinds of uh, hazard. Uh, In altering the DNA code of human embryos, uh, human um, life, the objective of scientists is to show that they can eradicate or correct genes that cause inherited disease, like the blood condition, beta, I can't even pronounce the latter part of that. The process is termed germline engineering, because any genetically modified child would then pass the changes on to subsequent generations via their own gene cells, the egg and sperm. 
Some critics say germline experiments could open the floodgates to a brave new world of designer babies engineered with genetic enhancements, a prospect bitterly opposed by a range of religious organizations, civil society groups, and biotech companies. Although, given the story I shared yesterday, uh, there is certainly an appetite for just that. Uh, They call themselves cyborgs, but the notion that not only can you address uh, flaws in the human design, but you can also enhance what is uh, what is there. Uh, there's a certainly is a, uh, um, a an appetite for that very science. So I have no doubt that that would be exploited uh, should the capacity be developed. The U.S. intelligence community last year called CRISPR a potential weapon of mass destruction. Now, weaponizing that capacity is a whole nother possibility. Reached by Skype, the uh, uh, First U.S.-based scientist uh, declined to comment on the results, which he said are pending publication. But other scientists confirmed the editing of uh, embryos using CRISPR. So far as I know, this will be the first study reported in the U.S., says Jun Wu, a collaborator at Salk Institute in La Jolla, California, who played a role in that project. The earlier Chinese publications, although limited in scope, found CRISPR caused editing errors and that the desired DNA changes were taken up not by all the cells, an embryo only some. That effect called uh, mosaism lent weight to arguments that germline editing would be an unsafe way to create a person, which, of course, is um, an unspoken goal, at least of some interested in this new technology. Uh, The scientist and his colleagues uh, here in the U.S. are said to have convincingly shown that it is possible to avoid both uh, mosaicism and off-target effects as the CRISPR errors are known. So they are refining this capacity that, as mentioned, has the the ability or or could have the ability to eradicate certain uh, inherent disease, but it also has the capacity to be weaponized and it also has the capacity to enhance Um, or to design what was not naturally present. We'll continue to follow this story. And again, they're looking to uh, publish the results of this particular uh, experiment. uh, And it took place at uh, uh, right here in Portland, Oregon at OHSU. We're going to take a break. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Now, earlier in the program, I had an opportunity to talk with Kathleen Michael. She's the author of A River of Tears. It's a first a first person account of her abortion experience revealing the true costs of abortion. And she makes some uh, pretty bold statements about Planned Parenthood. And I wanted to follow up with a few things that uh, Planned Parenthood is uh, currently doing. Their website has gone all in on the idea that gender is a social construct and has nothing to do with one's biology. Uh, they've long been known for their rather frank, scientific, matter-of-fact advice, or unscientific in this case, on how parents should talk to their kids about their bodies and about sex. But the organization recently revamped their website, according to uh, the Weekly Standard, And they've scrapped biological explanations for male and female distinctions in favor of a non-binary view of sexuality and gender, even for the very young. Now, this probably shouldn't come as a surprise, um, but nonetheless, this is uh, the direction that's now affirmed. The new guidelines include lengthy discussions on gender identity for all ages and encourage adults, you know, mom and dad and other adults, to explain to preschoolers uh, that one's private parts don't make you a boy or a girl. Now, you as a parent might be saying one thing, but this is the message that they're going to get elsewhere. 
Both the old and new Planned Parenthood recommendations for talking to preschoolers include explicit explanations on um, how a woman becomes pregnant, if in fact she's a woman. However, unlike the new detailed discussions of multiple subjects over dozens of paragraphs, the old guidelines consisted of only two additional possible preschooler questions, and the answers were relatively, um, well, relatively simple. What's that? Uh, And then there's an explanation, one that you as a parent would very likely Agree with on on these same topics, the new guidelines blur the lines considerably regarding female anatomy, for example, when answering questions, don't worry about going into every detail. For example, if your little one asks uh, um, about the chest area, you can say those are and explain everybody has them. You don't have to explain that breastfeeding or why everyone has the certain parts that are similar, even though not everyone breastfeeds. Uh, From there, the advice jumps into a discussion of gender, giving a nod to the traditional definition, but taking great pains to incorporate the latest thinking about gender identity. Now, while most simple answers... Uh, is uh, that girls have one thing and boys have another, that answer isn't true for every boy and girl any longer. Boy, girl, man, and woman are words that describe gender identity, and some people with the gender identities, boy or man, have uh, girl parts, and some that have uh, that are girls and women have boy parts. In other words, your anatomy does not determine what you are. Your biology is irrelevant. You can say that most girls have uh, certain parts and most boys have other parts. You may want to emphasize, Planned Parenthood says, that it doesn't matter too much what parts someone has. That doesn't tell you much about them. Seems to me it tells you an awful lot, but according to Planned Parenthood, no, it doesn't tell you much about them. You can make that decision based on your values and how you plan to talk with your kid Uh, about gender as they grow up. Well, the organization's website includes recommendations, not just for preschoolers, but gives pointers for talking to children of all ages about their bodies, their gender identity, relationships, uh, sexuality, and reproduction. And if you want to get, uh, you know, guidelines on this sort of thing, Planned Parenthood is the place you want to go. Uh, the new guidelines are quite extensive, delving into each topic for each age group for far deeper than previous iterations and break new ground. Uh, even for an organization known for progressive attitudes about sex and sexuality. Throughout the guidelines, the underlying message regarding a child's gender, or sex as it used to be, is that it's uh, unknown and unknowable at birth. Pink, blue, the gender reveal. And by the way, that sets them on their ear when you have a gender reveal party because you don't really know the gender of the child, they would argue, until that child becomes old enough, and that can be, you know, one, two years old, Uh, to announce what they in fact are. Parents are told that your kid figures out what their gender is really early on, and they'll usually tell you. So the child is informing the adult of what's obvious or false. So in preschool and in early elementary school, trans kids are starting to realize that they're not gender Uh, The the gender everyone said they are when they were born, the website goes on to say. And while Planned Parenthood encourages talking to children about most everything related to their bodies, sexuality and reproduction, the guidelines make one big exception. Gender identity isn't about what kind of an anatomy you have. And asking transgender and gender nonconforming people about their bodies is never okay, mom and dad. You know, the ones who are responsible for producing the bodies that their children inhabit. Uh, through the process God designed, you are never, uh, never to ask a transgender or gender nonconforming person, namely son or daughter, about their bodies.
And while Planned Parenthood links to a number of websites related to the topics covered, the website itself doesn't indicate the medical or scientific sources used to formulate the guidelines, recommendations, and information on gender identity versus biological sex. This is the brave new world into which your sons and daughters uh, are growing up. And then there's Minnesota. Uh, It would seem to be common sense that school children, fresh off the uh, learning of the uh, alphabet rather, should not have to learn the alphabet soup of growing gender pronouns sprung from the laboratories of college campuses. But that is exactly what is happening. We're looking at Minnesota. On Wednesday, the Minnesota Department of Education Advisory Council voted to implement an LGBT toolkit for public and charter schools in that state. Nor are these guidelines just intended for older students. Instead, they were created for children as young as those entering kindergarten. The toolkit says, and of course, this could never happen here, so you don't have anything to worry about if you live in Oregon or Washington, right? Well, the toolkit says the language surrounding gender identity issues is evolving and that any student, including transgender and gender nonconforming students, may be heterosexual, gay, lesbian or bisexual. But they aren't boy or girl. Gender identity does not correlate with sexual orientation, the report says. Therefore, the toolkit offers a litany of suggestions for how teachers should address LGBT issues and be more inclusive. One recommendation is to allow children to use the bathroom of their preferred gender identity. And it doesn't stop there. According to the Washington Free Beacon, the guidelines state that in addition to using the child's pronoun of choice, teachers must call students by whatever name they choose to ensure that bullying does not occur. So the child is instructing the teacher. The students don't even have to provide legal documentation or verification that their names have changed. But what happens to a teacher who doesn't use the correct name and pronoun to identify a student that they have been instructed by the student to use? Well, the guidelines say that the offending teacher could be found in violation of the Family Educational Rights and Privacy Act. Now, this is just a small part of the long list of recommendations. They also suggest not using the term boys and girls because, after all, they, there aren't any in reference to the children. And instead, using the gender neutral students and scholars. Homecoming and prom can also become problematic under the toolkit's rubric, as gender terms like homecoming king could be deemed offensive. The guidelines suggest using more neutral terms and phrases like prom ambassadors instead. Well, the report also urges students to adhere to these standards and for teachers to correct those who don't use the advised language uh, in the re-education program such uh, so described the toolkit is backed by a number of lgbt rights organizations according to the free beacon including the human rights campaign the aclu the national education association and the national center for lesbian rights but not everyone is happy about the ruling state representative tim miller of uh, prinsburg said that no one from his district supports the toolkit according to the star tribune I do not see um, sensitivities uh, to a 13-year-old Christian girl or a kindergarten boy who cannot possibly have a sexual orientation, he says. And though um, battlegrounds over gender identity have been all the rage on college campuses for quite some time and have now hit the political mainstream, it's still shocking to apply them to children who are just beginning to understand the world around them. Yet parents who don't wish their children to be exposed to the standards have little choice in the matter. This is perhaps a perfect example of why school choice is such a pressing issue for many, and so that families have greater freedom to opt in or out of policies and belief systems that are right for them and that are consistent with their worldview. But there you have it. Again, the brave new world, your sons, daughters, grandchildren, are, um, are growing up in. And if you think that you can simply uh, choose not to engage in the ongoing 
uh, conversation on these issues and your kids are going to turn out okay, um, chances are they're not going to have a biblical worldview that is consistent with the views that you hold if you are a Christ follower and take the, the scriptures seriously. While you may not be called upon to debate the issues, you must be prepared to speak to your sons, your daughters, your grandchildren, your nieces and nephews, people you care about in a way that um, that can help them navigate this very uh, difficult, and I would go so far as to say treacherous terrain that they now find themselves in. Um, just a, a quick glimpse of some of the things uh, that they are facing, and it doesn't. Uh, it's not just the high school kids we're talking about. We're talking about kindergarten and preschool. Do you know what your kids are being taught? What's being said to them? What definitions are being used? And whether or not your views are being respected or represented in the places where your children are sent by your consent uh, to be educated. All right, we're going to take a quick break here. When we come back, uh, we will close the show. So stay with us. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Tomorrow, by the way, being Friday, means we're going to step away from the headline news of the day. And my guess is there's going to be plenty of it. If it's breaking news and it merits uh, immediate attention, we'll certainly cover that news. But otherwise, we are going to focus on the lighter side of what's going on in the culture. And I hope you will plan to join us as we anticipate going into the uh, into the weekend. Well, folks in the state of Washington are a little put out by their legislature, and there's a petition that's being circulated. My understanding is there are 35,000 signatures, well over the goal that was 15,000 signatures, having to do with Washington's distracted driving law. At change.org, that petition is asking Washington state lawmakers to rewrite the new distracted driving law, and it's growing in its support. As of this morning, the campaign uh, had nearly, as I mentioned, 35,000 signatures. Their goal was uh, about half that. Well, the Driving While Under the Influence of Electronics Act, as it's called, went into effect last weekend. Lawmakers said the goal of the law was to reduce the number of collisions by drivers distracted by electronics. Well, there's certainly a um, worth, uh, a, it's a subject I think most of us would agree is worth the time and attention of the lawmakers to try to reduce the number of collisions. However, uh, for drivers in Washington, and that includes many Oregonians who cross that bar, uh, this may cross the line. Uh, as a working citizen and many others who commute long hours of driving throughout the state of Washington, says one resident, I feel eating, drinking, and or grooming should be uh, a citizen's right when behind the wheel and feel his, this law needs to have more of the people's response than having our elected officials make decisions without consent from the people, the petition description reads. Now, lawmakers would argue you elected us, you sent us to Olympia, therefore you consented for us to uh, make laws on your behalf, but the people are saying, no, nah, not this one in particular. There are elements of it we are unwilling to live with, at least at this point, 35,000 of them. Well, according to Washington state law, Officers cannot pull over a driver for a secondary offense. A secondary offense can be uh, added on as an additional violation if a driver is pulled over for a primary offense. Now, the first EDUI, as it's called, electronic driving under the influence offense, will cost a, a driver about $136. The second ticket will cost $234. The secondary offense under the law carries an additional 
fine of $99. Well, the petition asks lawmakers to rewrite the law to remove the secondary offense altogether. I think you can drink your coffee and drive without being distracted. The phone is a whole other issue, but I feel like drinking your coffee is totally fine, so says Susan Carnes. And the people of Washington are um, up in arms and uh, are petitioning their lawmakers uh, to revisit this law that took effect, as I mentioned, last uh, last Saturday. So that petition is circulating. Now, we know the Oregon legislature also amended what's acceptable here, and that's not yet as far as I know uh, in effect. But in Washington, uh, drinking your Coke and eating your burger while behind the wheel is considered offense that uh, can can uh, earn you a ticket. And we'll see what happens with this uh, with this petition. Rather interesting uh, goings on in the state of Washington. Well, tomorrow is Friday and uh, we're looking forward to stepping away from the more serious elements of, of the headline news. And sadly, there's so much uh, going on. It, some of it seems more like a soap opera than the serious deliberation that one anticipates and expects to happen out of Washington uh, during a time when the country needs leadership and many unresolved issues uh, need to be addressed. Um, but again, the distractions that we're hearing about on both sides of the political aisle uh, at, at minimum are frustrating and disappointing. Uh, at most, uh, they're downright maddening because, again, the people's business does not seem to be the main priority. Uh, it's happening while some of the people's business is, is being done, but the distractions um, uh, are just that. There's something of a, uh, a distraction. So tomorrow we're going to step away from that. And again, what we typically do is if there is breaking news that merits immediate attention, we will cover that. Uh, otherwise, we will um, spend our time focusing on some of the lighter side of the news. So we're looking forward to uh, to doing uh, that. I uh, also want to encourage you, if you haven't yet uh, taken up the opportunity to consider traveling to the nation of Israel, uh, this November, we are part of a very large campaign all across the country. Salem radio stations are extending the invitation to listeners uh, to join Genesis Tours, who has uh, who has worked with us. We have worked with them over many trips, and Dan Rice and I have traveled with them on several occasions. And I, I have to say, they do a great job. I really appreciate the uh, the tour guides. In fact, I still have relationships with several of them, guides that I met on these tours. We established relationship. And uh, during that intense period of time where you're traveling from one site to the other all across the nation of Israel, all the places you have dreamt of being, uh, they are there. They're helping to interpret the history as well as the scripture. And while some of them are unbelievers, I was struck by how well they knew the scriptures, even better than some of our fellow travelers who are followers of Christ. So I'd encourage you, if you're planning on taking a trip to Israel, you want to open God's word and make sure you're prepared uh, for what you're going to witness. But if you'd like to find out more, the trip that's coming up this year is November the 1st through the 10th. And you can go to kpdq.com, look for the uh, banner for uh, Experience Israel, and all the important details are there. The cost, the, uh, the the destinations, and all the details. Uh, I know when you're about to engage in that kind of international travel, you have lots of questions. You can check out uh, answers on the website. You can also call Genesis, and there's contact information there if you have more uh, specific questions that aren't addressed. But I would encourage you, if it's on your bucket list, as they say, 
This is a great opportunity to travel with fellow believers. Uh, pastor Sean Thornton, who is a, a, a pastor of a very large church, he also uh, has a radio ministry. He's going to be providing some greater context as a Bible teacher on this trip. And it's going to be a trip of a lifetime for many people who will go once, perhaps never again, or for whom this will be the first trip followed by many others. But that first time that you step foot in Israel, that you're standing in Jerusalem, uh, you're on the Temple Mount, you're seeing the Western Wall, uh, the first time you have that experience is unforgettable, and it certainly has influenced the way I understand and appreciate God's Word as I open the Scriptures, and in my mind's eye, I still have an image of the places uh, where many of these events took place that we stood as well. We prayed, we sang, we heard uh, um, exposition of God's Word. So check it out, kpdq.com, and uh, all the important details are there. I want to thank Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, James Blend for engineering a portion of and producing all of today's program. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Hope you will join us tomorrow. We're going to have some fun. Good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.